Welcome back to Revolution and Ideology. I'm Jared. I'm Nick. And we are here today to learn about the Harlem Renaissance. We have brought in a special, very special guest, Ashley Ellis, who is a graduate student in cultural anthropology. Um, and uh, she is, um, well, we consider her, she's a little bit too humble. We consider her an expert on the Harlem Renaissance, and she's here to teach us a thing or two, and also um, to provide us with some of her interpretations of the music um, of the Harlem Renaissance. So without further ado, um, I want to uh, open up the floor for Ashley to kind of give us a little bit of a lesson on the Harlem Renaissance. Ashley? This is really exciting to be here. I think we've been trying to do this episode for a few years now, so it's it's great that we're finally doing this. Yeah, we've been reaching out. We've been reaching out to her for like she's right for at least three years um, because she's an amazing performer. Amazing, yeah. So yeah, yeah. And Ashley was a student in one of our humanities classes at least. I don't remember the class. Do you remember? It was was it ideologies and isms? Was that? Yeah, you know? that sounds right. And we had. <laughs> We would have conversations after class and we actually talked about the Harlem Renaissance at length for some reason. I don't remember many times. And so over time, this just evolved into we should talk about that. And here we are. So now we're just going to pick up with like a super informal um, rough history of what got us um, to the Harlem Renaissance. So the first thing that we obviously have to talk about is reconstruction after the Civil War. Everyone knows what the Civil War is. We're not going to necessarily go into that. But after the Civil War, um, the Southern um, uh, states experienced what's called reconstruction. It's a highly contested term um, still in history circles to this day. Don't necessarily want to get into the nuances. We want to talk about what it means for um, mass migration of human beings. Now, what reconstruction um, brought to Southern um, people that had experienced, again, 400 years of oppression is important. We've identified four main things that motivated um, people to flee the South. First, it was like fake emancipation, right? Everyone knows about the Emancipation Proclamation. Abraham Lincoln is the great white savior, gets way too much credit for emancipating slaves. We know that wasn't necessarily his chief goal. It really was preserving the union. But regardless, we're not going to pick on old Abe right now. But with that emancipation, a lot of people use that as an opportunity to escape, again, the trauma and horrors of a place and a region and, and, and an oppressing class that had just brought so much havoc on them for again the better part of four centuries ashley like what do you think of this idea of this emancipative process as one reason people fled the south during reconstruction i kind of agree with you with that what you said the kind of fake emancipation like people are free but there's still these struggles that they're dealing with and they're they're not treated they're treated as second-class citizens, essentially. Um, but they're still fleeing because they're hoping that there is a place, that there there's better circumstances, and that sort of, if there's all these people that are like me moving to this place, maybe there will be better circumstances, and maybe you know we can't have this safe space and safe community of this emancipation, essentially. But okay. even though, like we say, fake, fake emancipation, right? It's not as if there was opportunities for prosperity, but they at the very least were now free to move geographically, right? Which had not been the case for, like Jared said, the better part of four centuries. 
So the second thing we've identified, and Nick brought this one up earlier um, briefly, there were a lot of economic problems during Reconstruction that um, that were problematic for actually people of all different classes and races in in in, in the southern in the southern states. I don't necessarily feel bad for for the white oppressing class or or even the white um, poor classes that they co opted um, by any stretch of the imagination, and I probably never will. But there were also economic problems for now recently, again, air quotes, freed African-Americans because a lot of them became sharecroppers. They're obviously like reconstruction or not reconstruction, excuse me. The Civil War um, was um, devastating to crops and the ability to grow and all those types of things that were taking place in the South prior to. Um, So a lot of the economic problems from reconstruction and from the Civil War itself led to a lot of people, again, fleeing this basically untenable material situation. Um, Anything either of you want to add to that? I mean, there was actually a specific instance. So like you said, many of the Blacks, I guess I don't want to say many, but there were a lot of Blacks that stayed in the South that became sharecroppers, which itself is like problematic and exploitative. But, you know, the vast majority of the Southern economy were still relied after emancipation, even on cotton. And there was an invasion of, I think it was the bull weevil that decimated the cotton crops uh, in the Southern United States. And so, I mean, the economic problems that were present already were just, you know, exponentially worse, which was one of the reasons that, you know, there was this mass migration away from the South because whatever economic opportunities were there now dried up, you know. Speaking of fake emancipation, um, there is no better example, of course, than the direct violations to the 13th Amendment. I don't even want to call them a violations to the 13th Amendment. Anyone that's seen the, the great documentary, the 13th, knows that there's like a provision in there that anyone accused of committing a crime can basically be brought back into bondage. And so obviously a whole bunch of legislation is passed in um, the southern states to basically goad um, African-Americans into um into essentially breaking these laws so they could be back and back, brought back into bondage and put into forced labor situations. These were at first called white and black codes, and eventually they became just what we commonly know as Jim Crow. A whole bunch of laws passed regarding segregation and so on and so forth, that making it very easy um, for people of color to eventually violate them. And if they violate them, and go through the court process, they can be brought back into bondage. And that was kind of like the Jim Crow situation. So needless to say, that would be a, a a definite reason for a lot of people to migrate. Any thoughts on that, Ashley? Yeah, like it's almost as if, oh, let's set up, let's make these rules and regulations and laws and set up ways, set um, almost traps for them to be criminalized and then we can put them back into slavery. It's, it was all very intentional with, with, with everything, but it's, it's frustrating to read that stuff back and knowing that they re- there is this emancipation, but we're going to set you up for failure and we're going to set you up in a way that we can put you back into bondage. Yep, absolutely. So, and then the last reason we've identified as far as like for, for people basically to flee the South 
mass violence. Um, during Reconstruction, a new organization was formed. We all know it, it is called the Ku Klux Klan. Um, and uh, they had infiltrated all forms of like government, enforcing classes and so on and so forth. And so like constant, constant violence against people of color um, was waged in the South and it would always go unpunished. Um, there's a great map, maybe we can link it in the show notes, that shows like basically every lynching that took place in the United States, not just for, for basically all peoples of color to include like Chinese railroad workers, Native Americans, and so on and so forth. There's a great map that maybe we can include. But long story short, there were still also things like the Colfax massacre. Um, and there was agency in the South to kind of like get away from this. I mean, uh, W.E.B. Uh, du Bois forms the NAACP, who pe most people don't know, their first role for a reason for existing was to actually stop the lynchings. Like that's the original role of the NAACP. So there was definitely agency in the South, but there's, I mean, you have to be able to empathize with a, a whole bunch of people that really didn't want to live every day facing like death, staring death in the face. So a lot of them left. Um, anything that you guys would like to add to that, like fourth and maybe even most important identifying reason for leaving the South? I mean, I think if you have the means with which to relocate yourself to a place where at least lynchings are less likely, then that's probably, you know, a good thing to do, right? It, just blatantly. Okay. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's, think about how exhausting it must have been to be in survival mode every single day of your life. Like, that's not something people should have to do. Mm -hmm. So once they leave the South, they end up um, going quote unquote North. And we, we obviously let the North off the hook. Uh, the North um, arguably is just as racist as the South, I guess, just not so overt about it. It's more a subversive um, racism with redlining and things along those lines. But, but they end up do going to a lot of these urban areas, um, Chicago, Detroit, and most importantly for our conversation today, New York City, and specifically a couple of boroughs, namely Harlem. Um, what do you think brought a lot of these individuals to these, um, these big, industrious, important cities, Ashley? Um, that feeling of um, sort of escaping that survival mode, the, the notion of there being a possibility there's more, um, there's better opportunities economically for you. And there's people like you that are going. So it's just, it seems like less of a risk to go there than to stay where you are. Mm -hmm. And importantly, in each of these, during this diaspora, it's like you're bringing all of this, like your own cultural heritage and way of being and thinking and speaking and acting with you, right? Like if we talk about Chicago, like up the Mississippi River and with it comes like these forms of expression, right? From, from New Orleans to St. Louis, or I skipped Memphis, unfortunately, but from Memphis to St. Louis and all the way on up. And those are the important things that I think all USers are, are unaware of, like all of their forms of like music and expression that like it's part of this process here. And, and, and much of this population does not give its just due, it's just due credit um, in terms of influencing the culture um, to the extent that it has. I mean, I make fun of, of my students in, in class that unless they're classical heads rocking Beethoven and Mozart every day, just about every form of music that they like today is because of this time period, because of this specific time period. And we could trace its roots all the way back to Africa and through the Caribbean and so on and so forth. So um, 
Anyway, um, that gets us to the turn of the century, essentially. Um, and, and of course, a big war takes place. Some of you may have heard of it. It's called World War One. But World, we don't, again, don't want to talk about the war itself. We want to talk about kind of its like role on, on two things, A, labor and B, agency. What was the role of, of, of World War One regarding labor in these cities, Nick? I mean, prior to the war breaking out, right, there was conflict between white immigrants and the those that had gone through the black migration to the north, right? I mean, essentially economically fighting for jobs, right? There are only so many jobs going around the city. But the second that the war breaks out, it completely stops the stream of white immigrants to places like New York City, right? These bigger cities of the north. So all of a sudden there's I don't want to say, you know, every person had a job, but all of a sudden there are exponentially more job opportunities for people of color that had migrated, migrated north. Right. And so they now have opportunities that weren't present before as a result of the war and its impact on immigration. The war also ends up kind of like leading to agency as well, as many of the um, uh, African-American soldiers that were basically drafted to fight for a country that, that did not respect them, that enslaved them, end up fighting. I mean, shoot, they come back, the 92nd Division and the 369th Infantry Regiment come back from World War One, the most decorated units from the war, and they were all Black units. The 92nd, of course, the very famous Buffalo Soldiers, and the 369th, even more famous, the Harlem Hellfighters. Um, they come back decorated. Well, some of them come back. Some of them actually choose to stay in France because they were treated so much better by the French population. So a whole, uh, some of them do choose to stay in France, but the ones co that come back, there's an agency about them. A fact that they have earned at this point, their right to express and exert, um, their will, um, and their autonomy when they get back. Um, anything that you would like to kind of add to that, Ash? Well, I mean, not to mention, I think that this is even bolstered by the fact that when they, like you said, they're the most decorated units and they come back and the country still does not appreciate them and what they've done, which I think is just a massive, obvious slap in the face, right? So you understandably would have a chip on your shoulder. I just served this country, right? Better than anyone else, right? We, we, we did more over there than any other regiments did. But when we come back, we're expected essentially just to get back in line, right? And to fulfill the functions that we have been uh, fulfilling with zero recognition of our efforts. So, I mean, understandably, there's this frustration. Okay, so with all of these reasons, these four reasons we've identified for mass migration out of the South to the Northern cities, as well as the context, the economic and socio-political context, all of this essentially leads to this kind of like magic moment um, that's going to take place in Harlem. I feel as, as though I could describe it as essentially a magical time um so so we're kicking back almost 100 years ago um so early 1900s um basically you had a lot of african americans migrating to new york and there was just this um influx of music art and poetry that all these people were making and all of this was capturing sort of the reality of what it was like to be black in America at the time. And you also have people capturing, you know, the struggles of racism and oppression and, you know, really important things that even today people struggle to talk about and people get uncomfortable, but it's something that we need to talk about as a society. Um, so I have so many influences from the Harlem Renaissance, but 
I had to cut it down because if if I were to sit here and talk about every single person that inspired me, we would be here for hours and hours. So I think I'll kick it off with some painters that I really love. Um, one of my favorite painters, Aaron Douglas. Yes. So he, I just love his work because his use of colors and they're, they're just these beautiful pieces, but you, you sit there and you look at them and it's, it's almost like these Easter eggs that I find every single time I look at them. It's like, I see something new. Um, I don't know if you guys feel the same way about Mr. Aaron Douglas, but. Um, There's definitely a lot of depth and detail. I think that it requires a uh, multiple viewings, right? I think to, and you probably can't even, right. But to see everything that's there, you know. Right. Like um, I want to say building more stately mansions. Um, so that piece features like a sphinx and then you have these like features of industrialization like together and like I was looking at it just yesterday and I was like I didn't notice the some of the industrialization aspects of it the first time that I looked at it and every single time I look I'm like well there's there's something else like in this corner like in the background that I didn't realize and there's like analyzing it so much there that you pick up like just looking at it you're like oh this is pretty but like okay I'm gonna sit here mm. and think about okay well we have the history like with the sphinx we've got beautiful African history here but we've also got industrialization and sort of this um lineage of what black people have kind of been forced to do throughout you know centuries and decades and all that kind of stuff um i think my favorite piece from him though is the creation and you have um you have somebody looking up to the sky and i believe there's like a hand in the background mm -hmm. but um i really like that one because i mean it's called the creation but that one to me it sort of represents this like yearning of hope in a way um do you guys have a favorite aaron douglas piece um we use um in a couple of our classes um either uh, isms ideology based or history based we use into bondage obviously because it's quite powerful regarding right. of course like this interpretation of, of of the onset of the transatlantic slave trade and what that means moving forward for an entire population of people in this diaspora so that's that one's really powerful and we use it in class all of the time in terms of like other ones that um we don't that i guess i don't use all the time and so i'm not, I'm not going to talk about that one but ones that i don't necessarily use in class all of the time that i'm, I'm kind of going back through the catalog right now um this one that's actually kind of speaking out to me that i don't know that i was familiar with but i'm looking at the catalog right now and um the founding of Chicago. Have you seen that one, Nick? I'll let you answer while Ashley takes a look at that one. I mean, I've always, not to just use the one that we use in class for the reason that we use it in class, but I've always appreciated Into Bondage for the reasons that Ashley said that, you know, one of the reasons the Harlem Renaissance was so impactful and so powerful was, you know, dealing with the issues of slavery and I mean, this was only, you know, at best 30, you know, 50 years after 
the freeing of slaves, right? So this is really, really early on in the memory of a people and of a country. So I think into bondage is just one of the sort of archetypical examples of, you know, wrestling with this past that is really inspiring. Like just to have something I think about. So in the early 1900s, like just to be a black person and just making a statement about society in general, like how, how, um, how much strength it had to take and how, how much backlash you probably had to face Mm -hmm. all the time, but you, you couldn't be quiet about it because you're outraged about how you're being treated. Like it's not, it's not okay. Mm -hmm. So, okay. So we've got Aaron Douglas. Were there some other like visual artists of the Harlem Renaissance that we should know about? Yeah, there is one more that I will mention. Okay. So Archibald Motley. Um, I really like him because he he captured sort of the um, a lot of nightlife, but just um, things that African Americans were doing. Like you would see um, some paintings of people at like nightclubs. Mm-hmm. There's uh, this piece I really like, Hot Rhythm, and it's like I think there's like trumpet players and there's people dancing and and you just have people sort of enjoying life. And it's nice to see African-American people just enjoying and embracing life under circumstances of such oppression and pain. Yeah, it's definitely a very different feel than 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 some of the Aaron Douglas pieces. But like but that's that's kind of the beauty of it is that. There is no one way to kind of, again, use that word we've been using, exert agency. And sometimes like showing this happiness is, is a, and, and celebration and ability to contribute to culture is defiance. And I, at least that's how I interpret it. I see it as kind of defiance, right? But I don't know. Thoughts? So I will admit that I had never heard of Archibald Motley, but the first thing I see that really jumps out at me is the painting called The First 100 Years is ridiculously powerful i think yeah i like i I look up these these um painters and i just look through their catalogs and i just spend hours like oh i've never seen this one before like Mm -hmm. oh there's something new here like i like his style or you know there's there was a even a few that i came across that i was like oh i didn't really know much about this one but I've definitely seen his paintings before. Like you said, I think the ones that are most popular are the ones that depict nightlife, really, and sort of joy and happiness and partying and celebration. But I had never seen the first 100 years before, which is pretty amazing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that one that one definitely has, has quite a bit to say in terms of all of the symbolism and iconography throughout which is interesting because when you do the first search for him, just again, we're just doing quick searches as, as we learn a, a, about the Harlem Renaissance here. It is the first ones you do see are all celebratory, which is great. Like those are very important pieces. And this one you have to do a little bit more digging for to find because it it is, this will definitely make, make people a little bit uncomfortable. But again, that's kind of the point of this process. Art is meant to create discomfort. And that's this, that discomfort is what leads to different understandings and different interpretations and perhaps a little bit more open-mindedness. Um, but also, like I said, that important agency of understanding what history looked like to this point. 
Um, I, I can't describe it nearly as well as putting the image on the screen. So we'll put the image up on the screen. And, and again, it's, it's actually really powerful. So, all right. So as we kind of carry this forward a little bit, we've got the visual mediums. What other forms of artistic expression speak to you about the Harlem Renaissance? Yeah, I like, I love reading a lot of writing and poetry, um, specifically Langston Hughes and Zora Neale Hurston. Mm -hmm. um, I feel like Langston Hughes is definitely one of the most popular Harlem Renaissance mm -hmm. artists, but I mean, you read his work, any of his works, and you read it today, and you're like, this could have been written today. Like, it stands the test of time. Um, What's your favorite mm -hmm. one? What's your favorite Langston Hughes? Because Langston Hughes is indeed <laughs> the most popular, but there's a reason for that. I mean, he, I mean, it's just exactly what you said. I mean, so eloquent, so poignant, um, able to contextualize not only the time that he existed within and, and kind of faced all of this oppression, but also like timeless as well, just as you said. Yeah, I think that's a hard question because there's so many good pieces but um I really like his poem dreams which isn't necessarily about race but um essentially it's about I think it's kind of about what happens when you kind of just give up like your dreams just turn into kind of vanish and all that kind of stuff and I think it's important that you know people you know follow their passions and kind of keep that fire inside of them. Um, another one that I really like of his is Remember. Um, I think I have it, have it printed here. This one's Remember. Remember the days of bondage and remembering. Do not stand still, go to the highest hill and look down upon the town where you are yet a slave. Look down upon any town in Carolina or any town in Maine for that matter, or Africa, your homeland, and you will see what I mean for you to see. The white hand, the thieving hand, the white face, the lying face, the white power, the unscrupulous power that makes of you the hungry, wretched thing you are today. So why is that one of your favorites? I think because it features the context of past, present, and future. It features okay. where you came from, where um, sort of the history of slavery and, and life today as an African-American. And um, that part at the end um, the white power, the unscrupulous power that makes of you the hungry, wretched thing you are today. For me, that kind of um, encapsulates that discourse of race and sort of, um, oh, well, these people are this, so we're going to treat them like this and oppress them. But when you really break it down, like that's a social construct that tries to, not just tries to, that it's successful and it um, sort of make people have to 
undergo all of these hardships and trials and tribulations because of this ideology we have around race. Do you have a favorite? Um, I too was always been just kind of like a generic favorite to kind of like, again, here's the problem that we run into sometimes as teachers is that oftentimes we end up like maybe not looking necessarily at our personal favorites, just the ones that we think are most effective at conveying whatever we're trying to get across in the classroom. Um, but I too has always kind of been a favorite of mine, regardless of, of, of whether or not I think it's most effective in the classroom, but also conveying a certain type of ethos from that time period. And like I said, that kind of agency, um, that's important, not just again, from like an artistic point of view, but from a political point of view, um, a point of view that is about like resistance. I think those are, those are some big big things that I look for, obviously, in my poetry. Like you said, one of the other things that I've always attached to like Langston Hughes and then some of my other favorites like Claude McKay and, and County Cullen, some of my other favorite poets from this time period, is the timelessness. So if you go from like the poetry that you are going to see in in, in some of these poems um, to some of the music you're going to see in like the early jazz scene that you're going to probably be talking about shortly and to how that transfers over into the early rock and roll scene, which of course, I think most of our listeners are very well aware was not Elvis and the Beatles and stuff. It was, it was black artists, right? Like Chuck Berry and so on and so forth. And then you see some of how that transfers over into even other communities like the Rastafarian community. Um, and we see what, like what, what's going on with Marcus Garvey and Bob Marley. And then we move into like Marvin Gaye and things along those lines that not that Marvin Gaye was a Rastafarian. But like you see the lyrics and like the poetry of what they're talking about transfers all the way up to, of course, my favorite medium like hip hop. And those are the connections I make. And that sometimes I'm not saying all hip hop songs. There's definitely some that, that don't make the cut. But sometimes like what they're talking about is not just, again, contextual for, in this case, the 30s for Langston Hughes or the 60s and 70s for Marvin Gaye or whatever. Like it is it's it's timeless. And unfortunately, some of that timelessness reveals that we haven't come nearly as far as we like to think. Right. Like, again, when you think about it from like what is being discussed in all of these different mediums the fact that we're still kind of having, and you opened the end, the episode with this, the fact that we're still having these conversations today is, is, is actually kind of problematic in a way that, that, that we see people standing up to subjugation in all of these different ways, not just through art and music, but all of the ways that we could talk about through civil rights movements and so on and so forth. And we're still kind of, we're still forced to face this. And I think that's also um, reveals a great deal about um, the United States inability to, um, for lack of a better term, to grow, grow the fuck up. Um, anyway, let me ask you, you mentioned Zora Neale Hurston as well. Yeah. What was it about, she's a little bit more controversial because I mean, I, I, I do know a little bit of the history here. She's not controversial in, in, in what she has to say. She's a, a beautiful artist, but I do know that there was a little bit of controversy even back during the time um, between her and like Langston Hughes and I believe Claude McKay. Um, and maybe I'm, I'm kind of, I was, I'm, maybe I'm incorrect in this, but what do you think it was about her and her different interpretation of how to, again, exert herself and her thoughts and how she overcomes various things, especially when I think of like, 
I'm trying to think of like her most famous piece, how it feels to be a colored me and how those, that type of agency and that type of, again, expression um, caused maybe a little bit of like a low key rift. I'm not saying like a big rift, but like a little bit of a low key rift in the, in, in, in some of what the artists were trying to accomplish during this time period. It's a really good question. Um, I think just kind of a generalization of these artists, um, Langston and, and Zora, I think they faced backlash because there's some, well, because what they were saying, like you're talking about oppression, people aren't going to like that. <laughs> right. Um, and I think with Langston and kind of being like, like there's, there's some of his words where he's like, we have to do something about this. Like we got to come together and like people don't want the oppressors don't want the oppressed to rise up and acknowledge what is going on to them and to like overcome their struggles. But with Zora, I, I don't know what it was because like reading her work, like how it feels to be a colored me, like this, there, there's this excerpt I'm looking at right now. So it says, sometimes I feel discriminated against, but it does not make me angry. It merely astonishes me. How can any deny themselves the pleasure of my company? It's beyond me. Mm -hmm. Like it's, I think she, the way that she looked at race, um, it's just like, well, like we're all, we're all kind of just the same. Like we're just like your skin color is just different. Like it's racism. It's a weird topic. <laughs> and I think the way that she approached it is maybe the reason why it made people kind of look at her weird. All right. So there's also um, some musicians that I absolutely love from the Harlem Renaissance that I feel like have contributed so much, not only to the Harlem Renaissance, but just in, in terms of music in general and um, how that has influenced me. So uh, Duke Ellington is one of my favorites. Um, I view him as royalty almost <laughs> in a sense. Um, he's just this iconic person that has done so much and contributed so much to the culture and um, listening to his pieces, like you're just like, wow, like this is such a great piece. Like you, you composed that how many years ago and it's still kind of like Langston stands the test of time and people are still playing his music. Um, he was talented in many ways. He was a composer, a pianist, a band leader, like he did it all. Um, and he was like, he was just admired for how he, he was just someone who sort of transcended these boundaries. And Duke Ellington seems like one of those people that everyone kind of loves. Um, he has, uh, I've done so many of his pieces. <laughs> I have one of my favorites is probably Come Sunday. Um, that one, is a bit more emotional, but I feel it's very important. That one for me, it sort of offers this sense of hope through everything that you have to 
deal with constantly being black in the United States. And even through all that, you still deep down want things to get better and you still want to see better days ahead. And that's that's what that song gives me. Um, I've also done his piece, um, Satin Doll. That one's a fun one. But yeah, Duke is just um, iconic and he's done so much. And like I said, his music could be written today. And um, there's so many different um, renditions of his pieces and they still sound like brand new. Which one um, are we going to hear from you? Um, come Sunday, since that one's my favorite. Yeah. And then I thought that we would sort of wrap up this discussion talking about one of my biggest influences, not only in the Harlem Renaissance, but in general, Miss um, Billie Holiday. Uh, she, she was a, just amazing. Um, her phrasing, the, her voice was so unique and I see a lot of myself in her, even if that sounds weird, but um, she's inspired me in so many ways. I actually have, this is kind of random, but there's this um, black owned company, they're called Harlem Candle Company. And they essentially make these candles, these luxury candles based off of um, people from Harlem. And I have one and it's Lady Day. Oh. So, yeah. <laughs> So it has a picture of her. I can kind of see. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. And then it's really cool because um, in the box, it sort of includes this like this little statement about Billie Holiday and, and like a little history blurb. And then it's also cool because you look in the box and it's it's literally a map of Harlem. Oh, that's awesome. That yeah. is awesome. <laughs> But this is this is one of my prized possessions. Like I've never burned the candle because <laughs> <laughs> I just think it's so beautiful. And it's like this piece of history that I have. Yeah. 
So it's just it's just something that I like to look at. But yeah, it's it's a very cool company. They've got they've got Billy Holiday. I think they've got James Baldwin, Duke Ellington, um, and then they have like different aspects of Harlem as well. It's it's very cool. You should check it out. But going back to yeah, I mean, yeah, you got my attention with James Baldwin right there. You definitely got my attention with James Baldwin. Oh, yeah. for sure. I wanted to include him too, but there's that would have been way too lengthy. But yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, everything he wrote, everything. Yeah, so much, so much power there. Okay. Oh, yeah. So what, um, what Billy Holiday uh, song are we going to hear in your in your um, interpretation through your interpretation? So. I chose Strange Fruit. Okay. Um, the song is, it's something. It's, um, so it's basically discussing the lynchings of African-Americans and it's very detailed. Um, I've, I've performed this this piece a few times. You you guys have even seen it. And it's I've said this before and I'll say it again. Probably one of the most difficult things I've ever done. Um just everything that I felt during the process of leading up to performing it and performing it in itself was unlike anything I've ever experienced. Um and thinking of Billy doing that back in that time over and over and over again, she was so courageous to have done that. And she was attacked. Mm -hmm. She was attacked by the government essentially. And people would try to silence her, but she, she never gave up. So like having um, having um, acknowledging what she did is part of the reason why she's um, such a big influence to me because I feel as though I'm able to do what I can do because of what she did and that, that she put herself on the line. So yeah, Billy, Billy has a very special place in my heart. obviously was an amazing rendition your interpretation so um if there was any like final this is so unfair of me to ask if there was any sort of final uh, like 
final thing you want to say, I, I don't want to say assessment. That's not the right word or statement. You can never make some, you can't assess things. You can't, but like, if there's any sort of final thing about the Harlem Renaissance that like, you'd like to express, like, again, we can't wrap it up and put some cute, neat little bow that would be antithetical to everything the Harlem Renaissance is about. Right. right? You can't do that. <laughs> like, like maybe just like this final thought, what does it mean to you? Like the Harlem Renaissance. The Harlem Renaissance. I think we saw it in the song, but I want to. Yeah, um, that's a that's a really big question, I feel like. But the Harlem Renaissance means the world to me, because, like I said, I feel as though what a lot of these artists did, not only were they just speaking about oppression and racism and their realities and trying to make this change in society but they were also capturing joy and it, it's just that aspect of representation like that's so important and just to see paintings of black people just to hear a black woman singing just to see a black man composing these amazing pieces it, it means the world to me. And it's, I feel as though a lot of the pieces and music and writing and poetry affects a lot of the way that, um, not how I perform as an artist, but almost the way that I think in a way. I feel like a lot of the conversations that the three of us have had, like they all, a lot of them go back to Harlem and we we mention a lot of these artists so many times and talk about their influences and what we think about their contributions but harlem renaissance is my favorite renaissance so <laughs> the only renaissance that matters right only renaissance that matters so <laughs> that other that's not true but <laughs> hey i don't know i, I that mm -hmm. other one was built off of like you know stolen property to include people so like we can't yeah <laughs> anyone any anyway <laughs> anyway we won't go down that 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 rabbit hole right this second so ashley ellis scholar artist musician amazing person nick you want to take us out Thank you all for listening or watching that episode, however you're digesting it, whether it's on YouTube or your favorite podcast app. Definitely thank you to Ashley for coming and joining us in this conversation that has been a long time in the making between the three of us, for sure. Um, if you really, really love what we do, you can support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash revolution and ideology. I am Nick. I'm Jared. And thank you to Ashley. Later.